Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this grand story. Lord, I know that there are things in your word that you have for us this morning to teach us, to grow us, to stretch us, to encourage us, to remind us of your promise. Help our hearts to listen, our ears to hear. Um, Lord, by your grace, let us uh, grow to be more uh, like Christ as we spend this time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Most of us enjoy a good story. In November 2011, Kendall Wilson, the facilities manager at Nippon Bible College, called me into his office. He proceeded to say, Jason, you have a Nissan. Are these your keys? I did a double take, confused more than anything. A set of car keys I had lost in Edmonton one full year earlier were somehow here in Nippon at NBC, now hanging from Kendall's fingers. He continued, These keys were left in the guys' dorm at Alumni Weekend last year. Immediately my mind went into detective mode, piecing together quickly the story from a year earlier. In November 2010, still living in Edmonton, I had acted on plans to come to Nipwin for an annual alumni weekend event. I had also arranged to give rides to two other Edmonton area alumni. Early the Friday morning, I went out to start uh, my car at the parking lot of the townhouse and backed it up to a loading area about 100 feet away from my townhouse door. I opened the trunk, I shut off the car. Over the next five minutes, I walked back and forth from my place to the car and loaded the trunk. My two travel mates arrived, parked on the street, and they also brought their bags to the car. And once the truck trunk was loaded, we were ready to take off to Nippon. One small problem. I couldn't find the car keys. <laughs> Me and my two travelers spent about 10 minutes looking around the parking lot, looking in the car, especially the driver's seat where I'd been. We'd searched the sidewalk between the car and the townhouse. Lindsay looked all over the house. No keys. I was perplexed. Not wanting to spend any more time looking, I grabbed the extra set of keys from the house and we took off to Nippon. Eight hours later, we arrived at NBC. I dropped off one of the passengers, Chris, at the guy's dorm, and the other guy, Derek, at his parents' home, and I stayed with my sister in her home. I didn't think of the missing keys again until I got back to Edmonton. Truth be told, I never saw them again until seeing Kendall hold them in front of me here in Nippon one year later. His story was simple. In the weeks after alumni weekend, someone in the guy's dorm had found a set of keys around that didn't seem to belong to anyone. The keys were eventually passed along to Kendall as the facilities manager, and he'd thrown them into the safe and eventually forgot about them. Until one year later, and I was on staff, he suddenly remembered that I drove a Nissan and called me into his office and showed me the keys. The story all came together. Somehow I dropped my keys into the trunk that morning at Edmonton a year before during the process of packing. And um, they'd fallen into one of the other guy's stuff. Uh, happened to fall into the guy's stuff who came to Nippon and stayed in the dorm that weekend. 
At some point during the weekend, he discovered a set of keys with his belongings, knowing they weren't his, but assuming that they somehow belonged to somebody in the dorm, he just left them there in whatever area he'd slept in. Eventually, someone in the dorm saw them laying around, and when no one claimed the keys, they made it into the hands of Kendall, the facilities manager. Kendall was surprised that nobody who had attended Alumni Weekend had reported losing their keys. And, of course, I had no way of knowing that I'd actually lost my keys in Nippon instead of Edmonton. As it turned out, God brought Lindsay and I uh, through a process to move to Nippon nine months later, only to be reunited with my keys about a year after I'd lost them, 750 kilometers away. Don't you just love a good story? And I, although I, I don't think that uh, God's providence in me finding my keys has had the impact on my life of some other stories, uh, I did, it did come to mind when I read the story of the servant of Abraham on a journey, traveling 900 kilometers to find Isaac, a wife. Uh, the providence of God and a faithful servant are on full display this morning as we read the story familiarize ourselves with the details and ask the Lord to guide us on our own journeys. This is quite a story. It's the longest written single story in Genesis. It could be noted that while only 31 verses are used in chapter 1 to talk about creation, 67 are used in this chapter to recount the story of Isaac and Rebekah. I want to begin with clarifying the word providence. It's not actually a word that's even in the Bible. So what do we mean when we say God's providence? Paul Helm, a British theologian, defined the providence of God as being the working of God's sovereignty to continually uphold, guide, and care for his creation. John Piper comments that it is God's seeing to everything. Absolutely everything that needs to be done to bring about his purposes, God sees to it that it happens. Isaiah 46.10 says, I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and will accomplish all my purpose. In other words, I will see to it. A good summary of providence is that it is God's wise and purposeful sovereignty. We begin with looking at number one on your outline, if you have those, the will of the Father, and start with some background information. Abraham is near the end of his life, well advanced in years. He's lived a long, fruitful life, and he desires to see Isaac married. We see in verse one that Abraham has been blessed in all things, which will be fleshed out later in the chapter, in verse 35 and 36, when the servant shares everything that Abraham has been blessed with. Um, You might remember the story of Melchizedek earlier in our Genesis series calling Abraham blessed back in chapter 14. But this is the first time that the author of Genesis uses the word, the narrator. We've recently read through the story of God's request for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and Abraham's choice to obey and trust that God was enough for him and that God would somehow still fulfill the promise to make a people through Abraham's descendants in his own perfect way. Well, God spared Isaac, of course, and just last week when Josh preached and at the end of chapter 22, mention is made of Abraham's extended family, 
foreshadowing the name Rebecca, a daughter of Bethuel, who is Abraham's nephew. So today, we begin chapter 24 by looking at the will of Abraham. And our first scene is Abraham engaging in, in a conversation with his most trusted servant. The servant is unnamed, though it could be a previously well-praised servant named Eliezer, which is, uh, who is mentioned in Genesis uh, 15. Abraham is confident in the, in the Lord's promise from chapter 22, 17 to multiply the offspring or multiply Abraham's offspring and bless the nations. And here we read Abraham painting a best case scenario to his servant regarding how he is to go about finding a wife for Isaac. These are the last recorded actual words of Abraham in Genesis. And it's probably not a coincidence that there is a connection to wanting to see God fulfill his promise. As Abraham sits down with his most trusted servant, he starts the conversation with, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth. Now, talk about an immediate recipe for things getting really serious or even awkward in the blink of an eye. Because it wasn't just that the servant was putting his hand on his thigh. When you study deeper the meaning of, of this phrase, it's a euphemism for the servant putting his hand under the reproductive organ of Abraham. This might seem completely bizarre to you or I in, in Canada in 2023, but this was actually a normal practice in that culture uh, and, and in that time of history by which the patriarchs would secure their last will especially when it was connected to posterity or the future generations of, of a family line. And the process would be to have an oath sworn that was connected to a physical source of life. You see something like this practice again in Genesis 47, when ja with Jacob invoking Joseph to do the same when he asks him to swear to take his body to be buried, uh, back to be buried in Canaan, the promised land. And that promised land here is a big part of Abraham's oath with his servant. So he makes his servant swear the oath that he will do as Abraham is asking. Abraham has two main instructions for the servant. First, that Isaac is not to marry a Canaanite, a Canaanite woman. And so the servant must travel to Abraham's kindred and get a wife from him there, or for him there. Generations later, when God was bringing the Israelites into the promised land, they are warned in Deuteronomy 7 not to marry the people of the land, which included the Canaanites. Here, we see Abraham's desire to protect his son from any woman who would potentially influence Isaac away from faith in the one and only Lord God. Abraham's second desire is that Isaac will not go back to Mesopotamia with the servant. In verse 6, he says, See to it that you do not take my son back there. Abraham knows that just as clearly as God called him out of that land to where he is now, it is just as important for Isaac to remain in the land of the promise at this time in history. He wants to ensure that Isaac would not find a reason to be tempted to return to Mesopotamia, especially if a potential bride is unwilling or was unwilling to come back to Canaan. Now, Abraham doesn't just tell his servant to go on this great journey, but he shares with his servant the news of the great promise. Abraham passes on truths he's been told in Genesis 12, 7 and 22, 16. 
So he says to the, uh, to the servant in verse 7, The Lord God of heaven said to me, Your offspring, or to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. We get the sense that whatever happens to Isaac is of great importance to God's master plan. The servant is even told he will have an angel go before him. Now, it wouldn't feel too shocking to Abraham or for Abraham to be promised by God to receive direction from angels, right? This is a man who's had angels of the Lord visit him personally. So think back to the story of Sodom and Abraham bartering with the Lord about the amount of righteous men it would take to save the city. It is in verse 5 we initially get to the million-dollar question from the servant. What if the woman isn't willing to come back with me? Is it possible this is a waste of time? Is he making an oath that would be impossible to keep? Perhaps you or I have doubted the value of asking a question before if we felt the people wouldn't listen. Even if it was the right thing to do, we might ask or wrestle with, what's the point of asking someone a question or bringing something up if the person we're going to bring it up to won't respond the way I want them to respond? Abraham addresses this concern simply. He says, you are only responsible for what you've been asked to do. The faithful servant is asked to invite Abraham's kin to come back and marry Isaac. If she will not come, the servant has still done what is right in the eyes of Abraham, who says in verse 9, But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. And so with that clarification of what he is signing up for with this journey, the servant puts his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swears the oath, concerning the matter. It's interesting that neither Abraham or Isaac goes to find the bride. The task is given to this servant of Abraham who is completely devoted to him. The favored term the servant uses for Abraham in this chapter is my master. Nineteen times he uses that term. He lived and served to please his master, which is good, great spiritual implications for us in 2023. We know that Abraham was a man of faith, and now we get a glimpse of why Abraham would have chosen this servant, who is indeed faithful himself. The servant will prove to be a faithful witness to the providence of God. The journey to Mesopotamia was no small day trip. Camels were still fairly rare in this era, and that the servant took ten shows both the wealth of Abraham and Rebekah's Eventually, generosity, energy, and servanthood to water them. We'll move uh, on now to part two in our outline and look more deeply at the faithful witness of the servant. It begins with a prayer of expectation. God faithfully brings the servant the 900 kilometers to his destination. And now the servant has arrived. He's got the camels knelt down during uh, doing the end of the journey stretches, you know, when you get somewhere after a long trip. And the first thing he does is pray. He knows what God has promised his master Abraham. He knows the importance of the task that Abraham has given him. And he acknowledges his dependence on God. 
In verse 12, he says, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the let and the daughter of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. This is actually the first recorded instance of prayer for specific guidance in the Bible. The servant believes the promise of God and shows incredible trust in the providence of God to direct him. He took the time to pray and to ask God for help and then kept his eyes open to what God might do. If, if you maybe had a moment like I did where you thought, this is like fleece, putting out his fleece, or the servant is testing God, uh, it's important to note this is actually quite different from Gideon's fleece where Gideon used that method because he didn't trust in God's promise. Here, the servant never doubts God's calling on his life for this moment, and he's not demanding a sign. The faithful servant is, however, asking for God's favor and providence as he seeks to honor Abraham and to complete the task his master has given him. Now, it's not often we read in Scripture of God answering prayer this way, and I don't think it would be prudent to demand or expect that God would answer your or my prayer in this way, at least not on a regular basis. But God shows his favor to the servant in this moment. In fact, God was already at work in Rebekah before the servant prayed and was already sending the answer to his prayer before the servant had even had the thought to pray. As we continue in this section, seeing the faithful witness of the servant, we are now introduced uh, to be in your outline, the character of Rebecca, who, if you remember I mentioned, was name-dropped last week by Josh at the end of chapter 22. Notice how the servant is proactive in approaching the woman here. He doesn't just pray and then kind of wait around for God to bring the woman to a comfortable space close to him so he can maybe gently enter into a conversation with her. No, he sees a woman come and he runs over her to ask this question. He's a man on a mission and he trusts her response to God's providence. Now, the narrator here gives us readers more information to know about this woman than the servant would have been able to know about, uh, about her in his moment of meeting her, like that she hadn't laid with a man before. He would have only known in that moment that, at least in his eyes, Rebecca was very attractive in appearance. And yet the servant's evaluation was just about to begin. Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar, he asks her. It's not a leading question. It's not, is there any chance you could give me a little hand in watering ten camels? Since hospitality is the determining factor of the faithful servant's prayer, it's, it's notable that God makes it quite evident what Rebecca's character exudes. She's kind, hospitable, industrious, and willing to help a stranger. In fact, Rebecca doesn't just give the servant a drink and just offer to give his camels a little drink either. She's going the extra mile. She indicates in verse 19 that she will draw water for them until they have finished drinking. After a long trek, a single camel might drink 25 gallons or more of water. 
and Rebecca had to draw all that by hand, 250 or more gallons. A few verses later, after telling the servant who she is, we read that Rebecca also offers the servant housing and food for both him and the camels. But beyond character, there are a few other important details we can pick up about Rebecca that are valuable to our story. We're told, like I mentioned before, she's never laid with a man. If genealogies are important and a specific family line has been chosen by God uh, toward fulfillment of his promises, then it's absolutely important that there be no doubt in the future who the father of any child born to Rebecca might be. When we get to verse 21, we see that the faithful servant is just taking it all in. He's still seeking the Lord's direction and guidance. He knows there is still one more request of Abraham that needs to be confirmed. So again, with intentionality, he keeps doing what he can to move things forward. First, he shows some of his own hospitality in the act of gifting Rebecca generously for, his, for her service to him and his camels. And then he gets right to the point in verse 22. Please tell me, whose daughter are you? It can be noted that when the servant received instruction from his master Abraham about Isaac marrying one of his kindred, it's not as specific of a request as Isaac's son Jacob will receive a generation later when he is told to go and seek one of Laban's daughters. While it seems there could have been flexibility in how close or broadly related a potential wife could have been to Abraham's family and still have been an acceptable bride, we once again see God working, God's working of providential details to, to the awe of the servant, leaving no doubt if the kindred relation will be close enough. Rebecca tells the servant that she is the daughter of Bethuel, the granddaughter of Nahor. This is not a distant relative of Abraham's. It's a close cousin, a granddaughter of Abraham's own brother. I imagine the aha moment that suddenly floods through the servant's heart and mind, knowing clearly right then that God has answered so incredibly this prayer of verse 14 to lead him to the one appointed for Isaac. That just as Abraham spoke in verse 7, God has favorably sent his angel before him and directed him to Isaac's future wife. The faithful servant can only respond immediately in the beautiful moment of worship to the Lord marked on your outline as point 2C. In verse 27, the servant calls out, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Have you ever had something happen to you you felt could, could be just an amazing coincidence until you found out someone was praying? Just this past week, I had a last-minute switching of, a, of an up, upcoming new tenant for a rental property in Edmonton. I had, had one tenant in place, and then and they seemed really good, and inexplicably, inexplicably they just fell through, causing me to need to move on to my second choice. And when I called that second person's current landlord after the fact to do a reference check, I found out their current landlord was a Christian and that they knew personal friends of mine in Edmonton that I'd gone to church with when I lived there. 
and that she'd been praying for the past uh, month that her tenant would land in a new home with a with a good landlord, maybe even a Christian landlord. So I don't know what God is doing there yet, but but I know that he's at work in prayer. Abraham's servant had prayed a prayer upon arriving at the well, and God had answered and brought about details in an astounding show of his providence. This passage next introduces us to Rebecca's family, which you'll see on your outline is 2D. After Rebecca has run home to tell her family about what she's experienced, we're introduced to Laban. Yes, that Laban. The one who will eventually trick Jacob and give him the wrong wife. We seem to already get little hints that Laban does not always have the purest of motivations. Laban hears Rebecca's story and comes to the well. It seems here that he's suddenly more motivated to show kindness to Abraham's faithful servant now that the gold and jewelry have come out. Regardless, the servant goes to the home of, Re- of Rebecca and continues to experience God's providential care and blessing under the direction of Laban, who seems to be providing leadership um, in this family home. Their father, Bethuel, likely at the tail end of life and, and has already passed on a number of these day-to-day responsibilities. Keep moving to, to 2E on your outlines. The servant is in the family home. The table is set, the food is laid out, and it's time to enjoy fellowship and a feast together. But Abraham's servant is still that man on a mission. Throughout the entirety of this chapter, we see time and time again a faithful servant who is concerned with staying on task with what he's been asked. His personal comfort or simply enjoying the moment, enjoying a feast, is not his primary concern, only that he would complete the will of his master. He says in verse 33, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And then over the next 16 verses, we get the complete recap of everything that has happened. We read the faithful witness of the servant as he recounts now to Rebecca's family all the ways he has seen God at work. He starts with sharing the clear instructions and details given to him by Abraham, including his fear that he would perhaps meet the right woman only to have her be unwilling to return with him. He shares the details of his earnest prayer to God for his favor and directing him to the right woman. He recounts the amazing providence of God in the immediate arrival of Rebecca and how she fulfilled each ask of his prayer. And he finally finishes with his testimony. Uh, he finally finishes his testimony with sharing the details of his heartfelt response to the Lord in, in worship, sharing with Rebecca's family the words of verse 48. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord and the God of my master Abraham, who led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. In our modern way of reading stories, we might be tempted to skip over this entire section because it simply repeats the details of the event, events preceding it. But to skip over the section or not realize its significance is to miss the point. It was such an amazing story that it needed to be retold. The servant felt the need to give God credit. He wanted to make sure everyone knew that him being there in that moment was the result of a full and complete work by God. 
Thus, it is communicated to Rebecca's family that both his proposal for marriage is providential from God and that this marriage itself, if Rebecca is to accept, has been ordained by God. This brings us to point three on our outlines. At the start, we see a positive response from Rebecca's family. Laban and Beth will say in verse 50, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, good or bad. This response is not necessarily a clear sense that they are agreeing with what the Lord has done, but rather acknowledging that if it is from God, then who are they to stand against it? They are, however, clear with their next statement, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. The faithful servant again worships God. And Laban, likely to his delight, gets a portion of the wealth that may have been driving or influencing his interactions with the servant. It is clear that Abraham had well prepared his servant to pay for any dowry or cost and to to bless with abundance any family of a potential bride-to-be. The evening continues with feasting, and as the servant spends the night there, we can imagine how how elated he might have been going to bed that night. However, the morning brings a bit of a twist. The tune of Rebecca's family seems to have changed. Let Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After after that, she may go, say Laban and Rebecca's mother in verse 55. It's perhaps an interesting foreshadow toward a generation later when Laban would make Jacob wait and work 14 years for his wife, Rachel. Perhaps if he could see into the future, Abraham's servant should have seen this short 10-day wait as a blessing compared to what Jacob would have to wait. We can, uh, I think, learn in in this uh, moment, or we can take this moment as a reminder of how easily we drag our feet with obeying God's direction for our lives if we aren't fully sold on that direction. You've heard messages from this pulpit uh, over the past um, couple of years preaching through varying scripture passages where God warns of personal family getting in the way of God's call in our lives. Rebecca is being summoned by God to be a part of God's promise to make for himself a people set apart for him and his purposes and to be a part of his promises to Abraham and his offspring. God's providence in all the details of Abraham's life, the faithful servant's journey, even in Rebekah's timing of coming to the well has been articulated with Rebekah's family. But they're still wrestling to let go. And yet, it's an interesting twist then that in God's providence, the family decides to present Rebekah with the choice of making the final decision. Abraham's servant, of course, communicates his immediate response to the family's waffling and makes it clear that he will have no part of foot-dragging and waiting around for at least another ten days. He asks them to send them on their way. And so the family calls the young woman and asks her, Will you go with this man? They say in verse 58, I will go, is her immediate response. 
In a moment, she echoes the same willing heart to follow God out of her country, away from her kindred, and from her father's house to be part of a great nation, in just the same way as Abraham had responded to God when he first called him away from Mesopotamia in Genesis 12. I remember when Lindsay and I were faced with a decision on coming to Nippon or not from Edmonton. Over the thought and prayer process of four months, it became clear to me that if we were to come here, God would have to make it clear to Lindsay. And I started praying, God, if you want us to go to Nippon, I'll know you want us to go only if, Nip- only if Lindsay says, God wants us to go to Nippon. And by her statement, I'll know that you're calling us both. Lindsay had family in Edmonton, she'd never lived in Nippon, and her family was even pressuring her to stay in Alberta. And I remember in that process, God impressing me uh, on my mind one night um, that we should write down all the ways we may be allowing ungodlike fear to influence whether we should be staying in Edmonton or whether we should be moving to Nippon. We read our lists, we made our own lists and read them out loud to each other. And the moment we finished reading those lists, Lindsay blurted out the words, God wants us to move to Nippon. What an amazing moment in my mind of knowing well, of knowing the will of God and acting on it and coming to Saskatchewan. So with Rebecca's decision, we move on to part four in the outline, which is the welcome of the bridegroom. The faithful servant, along with his servant team and Rebecca and her nurse, leave Mesopotamia and head back to Canaan head back toward Canaan. Rebecca receives essentially the same blessing from her family that Abraham had received in chapter 22, which again just confirms that tie in of Rebecca into the family line of Abraham. And now we find Isaac waiting. And the setting is that he's out, in the, out meditating in a field toward evening. The word meditate here is is a little unclear in the Hebrew as to what that means, but it is possible that Isaac had taken time to be alone and think and pray and seek the Lord. Some versions also use the word roam, uh, which would only further show God's providence of the timing of meeting his wife. Isaac had no way to know when the servant would be returning. And would the servant uh, return empty-handed or even with a wife? In God's providence, Isaac is out in the field the very evening the caravan returns. And thus he is the very first person the caravan runs into and he is the first person that Rebecca gets to meet upon their arrival. The servant now refers to Isaac as master. Bruce Waltke in his commentary notes that the passage is now most likely signifying Isaac as Lord and successor of Abraham. Rebecca's response when she finds out this is Isaac, her husband-to-be, is immediate. She dismounts. She veils and covers herself, probably showing humility, modesty, and subjection. We see Abraham's faithful servant take one last opportunity to share the stories of God's providence as he meets now with Isaac. The servant tells Isaac in verse 66 all the things that he had done and had happened. Wouldn't it have been fitting for Isaac to say to him, in foreshadowing the words of Jesus' parable in Matthew 25, Well done, good and faithful servant. 
But really, this chapter has shown itself to be a proclamation of God's faithfulness to his people and to his servant Abraham and now to Isaac. And that is quite evident as we get to the end of chapter 24. I just want to briefly touch on Isaac's love for Rebekah in verse 67. We see the consummation of the marriage and we read that Isaac loved Rebekah and was comforted after his mother's death. In North America, where we seem to pursue love and then marriage, it's uh, easy to forget that a pursuit of love after marriage is even more important than it is before. Isaac and Rebecca's marriage may have been providentially planned in heaven, but there's, uh, that's no sure guarantee uh, for its health. And indeed, of course, we'll find out in the future that by the time Jacob and Esau come around, it's pretty clear there's some issues at play in the marriage. But in this sermon, for this time and place, it is noted that Isaac was practicing his love for Rebecca. In arranged marriages, love follows union. There is an intentionality with learning to love and committing to love that perhaps we can learn from and make better practice of in our own lives. Isaac's love for Rebecca also brought him comfort in the loss of his mother, Sarah. Is it any wonder then that the God of all comfort would be the one in whom we most profoundly understand and see love? Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Just as Isaac welcomes Rebekah and loves her and becomes one with her, we are given, we are given the offer of being grafted into God's promise. And when we accept the offer of Jesus Christ, we find love and comfort in our journey of life here on earth. In conclusion today, we want to look at our own journeys of faith. Where can you look back on your journey and see the hand of God at work and worship Him for that? God brought me to Cold Lake, Alberta in the summer of 1996 as an 18-year-old after my first year at Nippon Bible College. All through my dad making a simple five-minute phone call to a friend asking if I could work for him for the summer. Years later, that boss told me that he agonized whether he should hire his friend's son or not. And what if the son turns out to be a dud and will that wreck the friendship? Maybe you've had that experience. (laughs) I look at that one moment in my life more than any other moment as setting a trajectory in in my life. The church and community there uh, in Cold Lake were where I began to put into practice what I was learning at Bible College. Uh, God began to grow me in servanthood and leadership. He birthed new interests and abilities in me. Then that led me to another city to do more school, which grew me in other skills and other interests that led to another town for more school, where he led me also to meet my future wife, Lindsay. There wasn't one before that. All the while continuing to grow me in skills that uh, began that first summer job of 96. This opened the door for my main vocation after Lindsay and I first married that I served in the first chapter of our lives. Um, And God led us to Edmonton and school for Lindsay uh, while I kept on in that vocation and continued to grow. God continued to grow us together in ways that prepared us both for God to bring us to Nipawin through a simple job offer that I wasn't even interested in. And a four-month process of prayer, 
making it clear that this is where he wanted us to be. But it all started with a father making a five-minute phone call desiring God's best for his son. God wants what is best for you and I. And ultimately, God's providence brought you and I to church this morning, and his providence put this date on my calendar for preaching out of Genesis 24. God's providence has allowed every good and difficult thing that is part of my life uh, and your life this spring and this summer, and he's calling us to be faithful servants. Like Rebecca, we're being asked to trust in God's providence. This is the first of our three concluding points. Are you going through a tough spell at work? Are your kids causing you heartache? Are your parents causing you heartache? Is there too much on your plate? Are you in a season of plenty, or do the cupboards feel bare? Are you traveling by camel to the Middle East to visit your extended family to look for a spouse? No? I'm kidding about that last one. God's probably not calling you to that. Trusting in God's providence requires us to develop and grow in lives of prayer and recognizing we actually are completely dependent on God. Abraham's servant could not have traveled 900 kilometers and found success without prayer. Where are the opportunities in your life each day to pray and come before the Lord, asking him to grant you success today and show his steadfast love? Because of the affluence of North America, it's so tempting to let our wealth and well-being stifle prayer. In the book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller says, if you're not praying, then you're quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. He continues in saying, Jesus is, without question, the most dependent being who ever lived. Luke 5.16 tells us he would withdraw to desolate places and pray he yearned to be with his father. And if there's anyone that ever had it all together, we'd probably say, you know, Jesus. Talk about a man who desperately needed his father, though. Miller suggests that prayer mirrors the gospel. In the gospel, the father takes us as we are because of Jesus and gives us his gift of salvation. In prayer, the father receives us as we are because of Jesus and gives us his gift of help. Let's grow in learning the art and the heart and importance of prayer. The living God who sees everything and plans all things for his glory. Uh, sorry, Jehovah God is the living God who sees everything and plans all things for his glory and the good of his children. We need his help. We can trust that God is providentially at work in all circumstances, holding on to the truth of Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Abraham's servant was obedient to his call. This is point B. He was given one task. Go to Mesopotamia and bring a wife back for Isaac. Rebecca's response was not Isaac's problem. Rebecca was presented with a call to leave her family and be joined to Isaac. Her obedience to go meant leaving and trusting God in the unknown of a new life. I dare say in Canada we have a lot of comfortable Christians who have been unwilling to be obedient to the call of Christ. And the result is in the statistics. A slowly dying evangelical church. Faith is the opposite of comfort. Will you be obedient and step out in faith?
And last, part C, loving and looking for the bridegroom. God fulfilled the promise to Abraham in multiplying his descendants and in the coming of Jesus Christ through Isaac's line. Jesus Christ came. He lived among us, and he was the most faithful servant the world has ever known. We are gathered here today to be reminded of the eternal bridegroom who will come back again to claim us as his bride. 2 Corinthians 11, 2 and 3 gives us a wedding picture of a church betrothed to Christ, presented to him. Paul shares that he is afraid that we would be led astray from a pure love, a pure devotion to Christ, our bridegroom. Christ has done everything he needed to for you to be his bride, and he offers you to come to him in faith. Like Rebecca said, I will go. Will you give yourself to Christ to be his bride? Will you lay yourself down, your kingdom, and make the decision to love Christ and live for God's kingdom? God promised Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through his offspring. Today we read that first step of blessing with the marriage of Isaac to Rebekah, and we're going to sing in closing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery and Celebrate the Beautiful Providence of God Bringing Christ Through the Line of Isaac and Rebekah. And now if we've put our faith and trust in Christ, we have become the spiritual offspring of Abraham, the church, the bride of Christ. May we anxiously await Christ's second arrival, his return from a foreign land to make us his own, saying together in our hearts and with our mouths, come, Lord Jesus. Let's take a moment, let's meditate on these truths as the music team comes forward and, and let's close our service together singing, come behold the wondrous mystery. <laughs>